You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today we'll talk about D.C. representation and the statehood debate, and we'll talk about a battle for representation and a form of statehood that was successful for a group of D.C. residents 180 years ago, one that two presidents supported, though at different times, both Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln were opposed to. We'll talk about a desire for democracy and a love of representation that didn't start in the 2020s, didn't start in the 1960s or the 1980s, but existed since the founding of a capital city. We'll talk about voting rights that were given, taken away, given back, and not fully restored. We'll talk about changes that have occurred even since I first discussed this D.C. statehood or representation debate when I first started the podcast in 2006. I'll get into the pros and cons, but first, I have to tell you the story of a man in D.C. who lived in a tree. Washington is a paradise for curious characters, says Frank G. Carpenter, a correspondent in the nation's capital in the 1880s. My latest discovery is a man who lives in a tree. He is an $1,800 clerk in the pension office, one A.B. Hayward. Mr. Hayward is a whiskered gentleman, a pleasant one-armed bachelor of about 40 years of age. His aerial habitation is situated between 14th and 16th streets. This tent-like house stands on a pine platform between two oak trees. The platform is perhaps 25 feet square and as high above the ground as the first story of a business building. Upon this rise walls of pine boards about 8 feet high, and over the hollow square which they form is stretched a ridge roof of two thicknesses of the strongest weatherproof canvas. Before the door, which opens to the west, is a porch where the owner can sit on warm summer evenings and on which I today saw his rocking chair and a water bucket. Mr. Hayward's habitat is reached by a ladder 20 feet long but very light. When he goes to work at the pension office, he carries it with him to the nearby farmhouse, where he gets his meals. The house in the trees is comfortable, heated with a small oil stove, with a carpet upon the floor, a bed, a bookshelf, and a writing table. The weather here has not been cold enough to prevent Mr. Hayward from sleeping in his tent home all winter. In the summer, with the cool green leaves of the spreading oaks to give shade, it must make a more pleasant home than the average room of a city hotel or boarding house. Now those who live near the district or in the district know what housing costs are. You can't fault Mr. Hayward too much. Even more curious is the filthy hole of the Washington Hermit that was sold this week for $10,000. 
for 40 years in the heart of the Capitol, in the shadow of the Patent Office, midway between the White House and the Capitol, this man has been living a hermit's life. When Washington was a village, John Birch bought his little lot 20 feet wide and 60 feet deep in the poor quarter of the new town. Here with his sister Sarah, he lived in a little one-story shanty. Stately brick buildings rose all about them in time, but they kept out of sight of their neighbors. By the time the massive post office structure was built, the wooden shanty collapsed. No doubt in shame. Birch propped up the crumbling walls with old lumber, and he used this and old bricks to enclose one musty room about nine feet square. In this cell, he has lived until today. Curious indeed is the home of this Washington hermit. Two beds, two rickety chairs, a rusty stove, and a wood table are crowded into it. Few people ever caught sight of its owner. Fewer, having seen him, wished a second sight. Birch looks like a savage of medium height. His dirty shirt is open at the neck, and his hairy chest shows out beneath his pale face, animated by his wild, fierce black eyes. He can neither read nor write, nor does he know his age. He is, however, a genius in a musical way. For years, he has made his living by repairing musical instruments. At a hole in the wall of his home, his sister Sarah has talked with those who wanted work done, but none of Birch's customers have ever set a foot inside. But, Carpenter writes, the Washington Hermit's fondness for liquor is the cause of the sale of his property. He had for years refused to give up his shanty home and move elsewhere. But recently, when he was happily inebriated, certain persons persuaded him to transfer it to him for the sum of $500. This transfer would not hold up in court, of course, but it has enabled the property to be put up auction, which was just done today. Burge's lot is at 10th Street, just besides Ford's Old Theater, where Lincoln was assassinated. That night, so Birch says, he saw several men sneak up the alley behind his lot, leading a horse that was saddled and bridled. One of these men was undoubtedly John Wilkes Booth. Birch saw people later run out of the theater, but he did not know of the shooting until the assassin had galloped away, well out of reach. So, I don't know why, why bother, right? With Carp- First of all, it's interesting. It's not the kind of stuff you hear about. But you also see that the mix in this city at the 20 years after the Civil War, there's still some rural elements in the middle of the city. Here's another interesting one. Belva Lockwood, the first female candidate for the presidency, rides down on a tricycle every morning on her way to her law office. She is the first lady tricyclist here, but there is a tricycle club now formed that boasts among its 38 members nine ladies, some of whom are expert riders. Belva Lockwood is 50 years old, more or less, and though Susan B. Anthony considers her young and indiscreet, her eye teeth are so well cut that she manages to make a living at the law. These cases she takes are chiefly those of breach and promise and divorce, though at times she has made arguments before committees of Congress. Interviewed regarding the presidential situation, this equal rights party candidate declares her case is hopeful. She is evidently enjoying her notoriety, now and then making speeches and bowing to the crowds, which greet her ironically with cheers and waving hats. Lockwood did not win those elections. She ran in 1884 and 1888, the elections in which Grover Cleveland won the presidency and ran for re-election and lost. She received no more than 4,100 votes. She didn't think she was going to win either, of course. She wrote to a friend, I intend, if possible, to get up an electoral ticket for each state and thus get up a grand agitation on the woman question. But I am not so anxious about the number of votes polled. Oh, D.C. was quaint. It was haphazard. The time that Carpenter's writing in the high 1880s 
was when Washington, D.C. had arrived as a city, when its population had boomed post-Civil War, and it had streets and city services that were well-funded and functioning, and people were moving down. Henry Adams, of that great Adams family, was not the only New Englander who decided that he'd go to this promising new city. 177,000 people live in D.C. in the 1880 census, which at that time was as many as Nevada, Delaware, or Vermont, all states. It was a desirable place, but anyone who lived there permanently shared one trait. They were not able to elect representatives in the Capitol Dome that they could see with their own eyes. Not Congress, not the House, and at that time, not for the president. That's because they resided in a district of Columbia, separated from any state. Columbia, uh, you know, the term America was never final, and Columbia was kind of bandied around a lot of times in a service of America, in, you know, in service of the name America, the District of Columbia. My had it grown in Carpenter's time from the little village that it was when it started out and Washington and others had the idea to put a federal city here, the mouth of the Potomac. It was a mere contemptible hamlet in 1800. And that's strong words because the person who said it, Pierre Lafont, was the person who planned the city. In fact, the amount of population it had in the 1880 census, that's what some of the promoters predicted it would have in 1810. The Rome of the New World, as some people said. It didn't get there. A city of magnificent distances, said one diplomat. Not a compliment. A capital city like no other in the world, said a member of the British delegation. Also, not a compliment. A wilderness of stunted stubs. J.D. Dickey, the author of Empire of Mud, about D.C.'s construction, described how early visitors would get out of their carriage and would immediately be coated up to the knee in muck. It was a wet, mucky area with huge roads connecting few buildings. The roads might be 160 feet wide, but they were impassable because they were so full of mud and wet. You couldn't walk across them. You need a carriage to get from one part of the city to the other. What is now Constitution Ave was at that time the Washington City Canal, designed to help transport and commerce. At only three and a half feet in a swampy area, it was merely a sewer. One British delegation member said that people would arrive in the center of Washington right there and ask where the city was. Not only that, it didn't feel like a city. The buildings weren't constructed. Many of them were abandoned. There were still fields. There were hundreds of pigs roaming around, cattle grazing in the distance. The city bears the name of the man who planned it, George Washington. He had a role. He would not live to see the city um, housing the federal government, actually, but he was involved in the planning stages very much. He wouldn't have used his own name for it. He would have called it the federal city. It was near his farm. That was no accident. He even bought a lot within the city. And it's not far from the Watergate Hotel, his lot. And it um, was planned for a university. And there is a university, George Washington University, that bears his name there. I think what he was planning was like a new American Harvard for everyone to attend, a, a, a university for the whole nation. Never quite happened. But even Washington, the most famous man in America that could unite the continent, had to deal 
with the mire of the district and the just the problems of building a national city in the middle of what was a farmland between two villages. To hear the tale told, because there's a lot of different accounts of this, Farmer Burns held the land between the president's house and the new Capitol building where Pennsylvania Avenue was. That was his cornfield, separating president and Congress. And according to some accounts, he scoffed at Washington. Washington came over to try to get him to sell to the federal government. He said, go take your grain somewhere else, and you wouldn't be anything if you didn't marry that widow Custis. He did sell later. He didn't own it forever, but didn't sell to the federal government. These difficulties, the death of Washington, the arrival of Jeffersonians in power who, frankly, didn't want a royal-feeling federal government, didn't want to expand the district so much or build too many buildings, but mostly because of a speculative land bubble where John Greenleaf, seen by most historians as a crook promoter, kind of like a Bernie Madoff type person, oversold lots, there was a fantastic bubble, the money was drained, and having lost money in the bubble, investors weren't wanting to build anything on these properties. All of these things combined. It still has this quiet Hamlet feeling, really, until you get to the Civil War. The monument isn't finished, the Washington Monument. The Capitol Dome isn't finished until that time. We'll get to that later. Uh, It's important in this debate to separate two concepts, D.C. representation and D.C. statehood. They are two different things. One I see as a clear fact, and I've been podcasting about this since the beginning. It's an offense against democracy. I see it the same way as an early president will talk about. It's simply a fact. People that live in the district do not elect a member of Congress, do not elect senators. You could also argue they don't have a state government that we, most of us, have, whether we like it or not. They do cast votes for president. That's changed a little. We'll talk about that. They have a non-voting House member, votes on committees. For the past 50 years only, they've had a mayor and a city government that they elect. And... In the well in the past, they used to have it and it was taken away. We'll get into that. American citizens not having representation should be an American cause. Everyone should agree on it, whatever the politics are. Statehood is a particular solution, and you can debate that, and there's arguments for and against. The representation situation is not. And what I'll address on this cast is that it's not new either. It's not something that just boiled up in the 70s. When Congress first descends on D.C., citizens in the area are voting. That's important to note. Something else to note. This isn't the first capital for the United States. The Constitution is ratified in 1788. Congress first meets. Washington, the president, first enters office in 1789. It's in New York. That's the capital of the United States. First year. The second largest city in America. It's bustling, though. It's got got a lot of action. It's got a lot of foreign commerce in New York. It's a good city. It's going to move to Philadelphia, which is the largest city in the country at that time and the most sophisticated time with the arts and the buildings. And thank you, Ben Franklin and all of that. With its suburbs, it has 40,000 people. Here's an important note. It's the capital of Philadelphia for 10 years and New York was for one year. In no case, no group of citizens ever gave up their right to vote just because they existed in what was the designated capital city in the nation. Now, you could say they had inherited rights, and that's absolutely true. I mean, it would be difficult to take away the votes of people in a city who previously had voted, not only for 
president, not only for Congress, but also for their state's governor, for their state representatives. But that actually was done when the decision was made to build a new federal district. There's not even a debate about that, by the way. No one in New York or Philadelphia is even thinking about that. Um, when the new location for the federal city is decided on, and um, we'll get into in another podcast later about the reasons, but you know, that's this whole story with Jefferson and Hamilton meeting. You, you've seen the play Hamilton, you know that act. Trade-off between the federal assumption and the location. The location was donated by both the states of Maryland and Virginia and also landowners in those states particularly in Maryland, where the landowners, where large landowners became commissioners. Residents at that time voted for state representations in Virginia or Maryland, where their village was located. It's really located, this district, between Alexandria, Virginia, and Georgetown, Maryland. These would be the two largest villages. The Organic Act of 1801 is the law of Congress. It's not the Constitution that designated that they would no longer have a vote. This is passed by the Federalist Congress before Jefferson comes in, creates the district, and puts those citizens under the laws of Congress. Now, it's not a lot of people, maybe Farmer Burns and a few thousand others. It's not the largest city in the nation by any measure. It's not what the framers considered a lot of people, the framers of the Constitution. It's not a block needing representation, perhaps. How do I know this? How do I get inside their minds? Well, I know this a little bit because it's a fraction of the cities of the time. 20,000 in New York, 30,000 in Philadelphia, 40,000 with the suburbs. And at the convention, at the suggestion of George Washington, so we know his thinking on the matter, the convention says that every 30,000 people need a member of Congress. It was originally 40,000. And they suggested, uh, Washington's actually the first one to suggest it at the very end of the Constitutional Convention, before they signed, move it down to 30, get more representation. So you see what a big group that needs representation is in the eyes of the framers, and frankly, the little puny villages may not have been it. Yet we shouldn't think that there wasn't any debate over this. At the time, Jeffersonian Republicans opposed to the Federalist Party are gassed at what they see. It's a Federalist power grab in the Organic Act of 1801, and denying a group of people vote. Even though he's not in the district, John Smiley, an Irish-American congressman at the time, represented an area near Pittsburgh, had served active duty in the Revolution. He opposes this act because it would disenfranchise free men. As I recall, he said, we saw fit to war with the British over rights like these. And another congressman, Ebenezer Elmer of New Jersey, his uh, family name, today represented in a town in South Jersey, said that we were treating people as if they were soldiers in a fort garrisoned there, vassals of Congress, subjects with no rights as freemen. Yes, it was important to people, and yes, it was noted. In, and it is true that Republicans did not win their point. Federalists passed the legislation. But it is also true that in answer to simile, we see in Congress, in the debates, even in the winning side, Federalists didn't necessarily say disenfranchisement was a great thing. What they're saying is, it's a small group. We can work out something later. These were things said in Congress. And besides, they'll be here. They're in the nation city. They're in the capital city. They'll, they'll have the year of Congress. That's a harder argument to make today. You've nearly 700,000 people. As early as 1822, city of Washington residents were not feeling so powerful. And a committee of 12 petitions Congress requesting a Republican form of government. 
which the Constitution says every state deserves. Now, they're not in state. And federal representation. A bill to make Washington at least a territory dies in 1820. James Monroe speaks out in favor of representation or some kind of change in the district. Or he's a little bit vague on it. The district, he says, is a departure for special purposes from the general principles of our system. And he's no radical, but presidents can suggest Congress from time to time to do something. And he says it merits consideration if an arrangement better suited to our principles of our government might be desired. This is 1818. Careful to say, if it does not infringe on the Constitution, find a solution. A bill to make Washington at least a territory dies in 1820. But Congress at this time does get a publicly elected mayor. There are further mumblings. In 1838, Maryland asks for Georgetown back. Congress denies it. But in 1841, William Henry Harrison, in his infamous cold weather inaugural, where he spoke with no coat, among us the other duties of a delicate character which the president is called upon to perform is the supervision of the government of the territories. Now, first off, how cool is it that he uses the word amongest? Use that word with your friends. I mean, you could just use among, right? But he says amongest. Okay. But he gets into his pitch. This is William Henry Harrison. For all of the other territories, their time as a territory is compensated by the rapid progress they make from infancy to mankind. He's talking about the territory, not the people. It'll eventually become a state. It's growing in influence. You're growing. But to the district, in effect, Harrison says, it remains a child. Only in the district, Americans are deprived of many important political privileges without any inspiring hope as to their future. That's 1841. That's William Henry Harrison. He's only going to be president for one more month. He can't do much about it. One of those days that he has, he's using to advocate for representation in the district. There's a little more. In this legendary speech, as we said, that some will say cost him his life. He did live for for another month. Um, He uses it to also add an interpretive note about the Constitution. In no way would the Constitution deprive people of a vote. Yeah, 1841. Seven years later, Congress will give the D.C. the right to vote for at least its own assessor, its own registrar, its own collector, its... uh, surveyor with no property qualifications required. Fortunately, this is white males only, but any of those who pay at least $1 in school taxes can vote in the district. The Constitution allows for a federal city, 10 miles square. It doesn't require it. As we said, Philadelphia, New York acted as capital. Some people in Philadelphia strongly wanted to keep that, of course, in Philadelphia. 10 miles square is 100 square miles. It's large, and that was intentional. Today, there are still boundary stones that have been dug up that reflect the boundaries intended by the original surveyors. But one corner of that square was in Virginia, the city and county of Alexandria. was at the time that President Harrison spoke, not in Virginia, but part of the District of Columbia, part of the federal city, even though they were across the river from the capital. And they were a group of D.C. residents, didn't feel they were represented, and they began a three-decade fight. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, 
all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's the thing. Not only were residents of Alexandria not in Virginia and didn't have a representative in that state's assembly, which they used to have if they were old enough, they didn't have a representation in the Capitol that they could see across the Potomac. Nor did they cast a vote for anyone that could elect President Harrison or any other president. What's worse is they used to. Uh, They elected congressmen just like their neighbors in the Maryland portion did. They elected congressmen in the first Congress, through the fourth, through the fifth. In the sixth, that ability was removed. It gets even worse. Without representatives in Virginia, you actually have competitors in Virginia. Virginia shuns this part of it that used to be part of its state. Virginia competed with them. When Alexandria wanted federal funds for a canal, probably the most important things you'd go to Congress for, like think of it as the highway money of today, uh, although they asked for that too. Virginia's congressional delegation voted against it, blocked it. They didn't want Alexandria getting the money. There wasn't any thought, oh, the Alexandrians used to be in our state. Let's look out for them. No. They don't vote for us anymore. We're not only not going to support it, we're actually going to try to block it. More money for Virginia. So starting in the 1820s, you have Alexandria and some from the Maryland side too, starting petitions. Stephen Mason, the grandnephew of George Mason, is an early leader in this movement. He's based in Alexandria. In 1832, the city holds a referendum. In 419 to 310, they vote for what they call retrocession. It's not binding and nothing happens. There are opponents. For instance, it's important to note that Alexandria has free African-Americans living there. They're a little bit concerned. They don't have voting rights, so they're a little bit concerned, though, about their ability to even have churches where they can assemble freely if they were to go back into Virginia. So there's a little bit of opposition, but overall, the city wants retrocession to be a city again and not part of the federal district. In 1835, Alexandrians turn up the rhetoric. A petition to Congress says, we are a deprived people, disenfranchised of rights so dear. D.C. may have not changed its license plates to, (laughs) D.C. changes its license plates to say, no taxation without representation in 1991. But well before that, that sentiment was felt. The rabble-rousing paper, the Washington Star, saw in 1888 fit to print that District Columbia citizens had contributed more to the income tax to fund the Civil War and the Union War effort than many other states, larger amounts than were ever derived from 
Arkansas, Maine, Nevada, Vermont, certainly larger amounts than Alabama, Mississippi, or South Carolina that were on the other side of the war. You see residents and the same paper is also boasting that its population is greater than Oregon. Okay, so so far what I've presented is a heroic fight for liberty and representation. Then we come to the large three-story brick building on Duke Street in Alexandria, where Isaac Franklin and John Armfeld set up shop in 1828. Uncle and nephew, they were good businessmen. Their advertisement reads, Persons who wish to sell will do well to give us a call, as we are determined to give them more money than any other purchasers in the market. And their strategy was to pay more to suppliers and hopefully build such a business on volume. But their business was best described by the large metal walls and gated doors, essentially pens attached to their brick building. And they were pens for human beings. Their business was human bondage. And they made big buys. In this ad, they were seeking 150 slaves between the ages of 8 and 25 years. Their timing was well. This was a time when in Maryland and Virginia, there was more supply of enslaved people. And there were needs in the southern states, buyers in the southern states. They made a fortune. They even opened an office, Franklin and Armfield in Mississippi. They became some of the richest men in the nation, not just Virginia, but the nation. Their business was sold to others, and then it was occupied by Union soldiers during the Civil War. It's a museum to freedom now. But here's the point. When Franklin and Armfeld were operating, they were operating in the District of Columbia. So were a number of other slave traders. Alexandria's position on the Potomac was a location perfect and the presence of high-volume trading in the nation's capital was despised by northern congressmen, free blacks that lived in the district and elsewhere, and local abolitionists, particularly particularly on the Maryland side where they were, they were more active. You get it during this time, William Lloyd Garrison moves to the District of Columbia, like many activists. Why rabble rouse up in uh, Massachusetts? when you can be where the politicians are. So you have a growing abolitionist movement. There's a one building that got named the Abolition House because the congressmen that lived in that boarding house were for abolition. Slave traders like Franklin and Armfeld and many others looked at these troublemakers and said, we want out. And it's probably not going to happen on the Maryland side, even though there's a little bit of a movement in Georgetown to get out of the district. It's too much abolition feeling there. In the state of Virginia, they're looking at Alexandria a different way now. Pro-slavery political forces were combating the western mountain counties where there weren't as many slaves. And also some abolition movements in Virginia and looked at taking back Alexandria as a way to improve their politics in the assembly. So Congress agrees with a few dissenters. In, in 1846, all of these years of petitions and these politics and weird combinations, Congress agrees with a few dissenters, 96 to 65 in the House, 32 to 14 in the Senate. There are a couple of reservations in the debate. Can Congress do this? Can Congress actually even change the district? 
This is the national capital. Two presidents, at least, will look across the river and pine for the days when Alexandria was in the district. Lincoln, during the Civil War, because he sees it as a horrible defensive position to have retroceded Alexandria, Virginia, and give that away. He's seeing a Confederate flag across the river from the White House, the stars and bars. Taft later on, because, well, he wants the district to have trees lining the river across. Neither of them will uh, get anywhere. Congress decides to do it. Polk, President Polk, signs the bill in 1846. A Jeffersonian Republican, a Whig president, and now a Democratic president all advocate for this. D.C. is cut almost into a half square that it kind of is today. All of the Virginia end is retroceded. Alexandria gets a representative in the Virginia Assembly. They start electing Congress people. They have a vote for president. A couple of things here. This precedent means that Congress can determine the size of the capital. It can give the land back to a state. It has done it before. It can determine uh, with the state's consent what a capital is. They can decide what's in the federal capital and what's out of it. The constitutional language says no more. Not more than 100 square miles. Doesn't say must be. 68 square miles today. Congress can also determine the laws of the District of Columbia. For instance, in 1850, as part of the great Clay, Stephen Douglas, the Compromise of 1850, it bans the slave trade in the district. And in 1862, before slavery is banned in America, it is banned in Washington, D.C. So you have no trading in the district, which again is only that Maryland side now, in 1850 and in 1861, no slavery at all. That's not a small matter because this creates a magnet for those who are running away from slavery in the South during the Civil War. It's what makes the Emancipation Proclamation real because the words forever free, that means while it's true that when Lincoln utters the Emancipation Proclamation, doesn't free a person immediately because it's only in districts where he's at war with that are controlled by the Confederate forces. But if slaves can escape and particularly get to the District of Columbia, where there's a growing community, they'll be forever free. Congress also provides funds for the education of African-American children. There will be tens of thousands. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. 
Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. One thing that doesn't happen is Lincoln... and his advocacy for bringing Alexandria back into the federal district. There is a bill that's floated. It dies in in 1867. So by the time you get to 1867, you have in D.C., by order of Congress, a city, first American law is passed, allowing... African-Americans to vote. And the first election goes well. The Washington Evening Star writes, the election put to flight the fears of those who apprehended serious disturbances on the occasion of this first exercise of the right of franchise by people of color. Every male citizen of the city who is 21 years of age or over has the right to vote. Except welfare, charity recipients, those under guardianship, those who voluntarily sheltered Confederate troops or acted as spies during the Civil War, or anyone convicted of major crimes. As a result, two African-Americans are elected to the Common Council, and Sales Bowen, who's a radical Republican, a white man, is elected. D.C. sets up a board of trustees of the colored public schools, and a preparatory high school for colored youth is set up in the basement of a 15th Street Presbyterian church. In 1869, the city of D.C. passes a law against racial discrimination in places of entertainment, expanding it in the following year to include restaurant, bars, and hotels. Seven African Americans are elected to D.C. Council in 1870, yet Mayor Bowen is having trouble. The financial condition of the city is bad, and one of the people that's going to work against him is somebody who had previously supported him. And that is Alexander Robley Shepard. There's something else to talk about. At first, it would seem like a crazy idea. Taking the bricks of the Capitol building, numbering them, and then piece by piece, brick by brick, putting it on a train and reassembling it somewhere else. But between 1867 and 1868, when political improvements are being made in the District of Columbia... Some congressmen float bills for another idea. D.C. at this time looks like a camp, still filled with mud. The the canal is still overflowing the city with mosquitoes. Wisconsin Representative Herbert Payne brought a vote to the House floor in 1868 to move the Capitol somewhere on the Mississippi. There's a lot of talk in St. Louis. There's even a congressman who has acres in St. Louis that he's willing to donate to a federal government if they want to move the capital there. It's supported 
by many Midwesterners, Chicago editor Joseph Merrill among these. As Merrill says, instead of the Potomac, the capital would overlook the Mississippi, so appropriately expressive of the broader tide, deeper flow, larger current, and restless force our national development has attained. Translation, Chicago wanted the capital closer to Chicago. A St. Louis convention is held. People come from various states, but no Atlantic states. And a second convention in Cincinnati is held in 1870 with even less attention. Part of the deflating of the balloon is Ulysses S. Grant, who comes out forcefully in his 1870 and 1871 State of the Union addresses, both times arguing for greater development in the city. And this culminates with the movement. Alexander Robley Shepard is, you might describe him uh, these days as a rhino or something like that. Like He was a Republican, but during the Civil War had been more of a conservative unionist, was a Republican because it was really the only working party in the District of Columbia right now. He was a member of the militia of the District of Columbia, didn't actually see combat service. It's a short assignment. He was not for emancipation, only for the Civil War's preservation of the Union. He did adjust as D.C. accepted emancipation and then accepted African-American suffrage. But he'll actually make a move that ends not just African-American suffrage, but all suffrage for all men. As a business owner, he wasn't too excited about democracy anyway. He did win a seat on the District of Columbia Council. At that time, would have been the Washington City Council, but was not a big fan of democracy in any case. And he, working with Congress, working with the support of Ulysses S. Grant, gets Congress to pass a territorial bill making a new entity called the District of Columbia. Now, Shepard does not head up this territorial board. He's not governor. He's vice chair of public works. But not unlike, say, a a Robert Moses of his age. Um, At this time, Moses doesn't exist yet, so he's not available for the metaphor. He's oft compared to Boss Tweed in New York City. He has all the power. In fact, in certain territorial government meetings, he asked the governor not to show up so he can run it. And in a few years, he'll become the governor of the District of Columbia. He fills that disgusting Washington Canal. He paves 157 miles of road. He adds sidewalks. He adds sewers, gas mains, water mains. He plants 60,000 trees and establishes mass transit in the city, public horse-drawn streetcars. Indeed, the city that we know today as the District of Columbia, how it came together, roughly finishing up Pierre Lafont's plan uh, with some modifications, is the work of the early 1870s. It's the work of Grant, and it's the work of the Republican Congress and Alexander Robley Shepard. And in two years, he transforms the city. That's not without problems. He's ruthless. In one case, when a judge is going to stop him from demolishing the Northern Liberties Market on Mount Vernon Square, he entertains the judge while work's going on. He bought off people. He gave them jobs. He spent a lot of money. It's going to end up being something like $20 million when it's all accounted for. And it will be accounted for. There will be numerous investigations in Congress when Congress is taken over by the Democrats in 1874, including many Southern representatives. They're going to target this District of Columbia because it is 
the Republican experiment that they say is an experiment gone bad, and you're going to see that example used again and again. It really doesn't change. The same system of government, what they do is they get rid of the territory and they run D.C. by a commission of Congress with assistance from the Army Corps of Engineers. That commission runs the District of Columbia from 1878, time of Hayes' presidency, to 1973 during the Nixon administration. Same system. Southern senators and congressmen have a particular interest in getting on and controlling the governing committee in Congress that runs D.C. You have a particular example um, in the 1940s of Theodore Bilbo, senator from Mississippi. He's a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He's written books about segregation. He's not hiding. One of his books uses the term mongrelization, and yet he's on the committee running D.C., which just a decade after he's on this committee is going to become the first majority black city in America in 1957. In the House, you have uh, from the 1940s to the 1970s, you have James McMillan from South Carolina, supporter of segregation and an advocate that D.C. does not get home rule. In 1972, residents of the District of Columbia African-Americans get on buses, go down to South Carolina, and campaign for McMillan's opponent. They get him defeated. It's only when McMillan is defeated that home rule, a mayor, comes to the District of Columbia. So, and some of that history is known that D.C.'s just had a mayor since the 70s. I don't think what people knew is that 100 years before that, they also had mayors. Uh, There's also a bit of a Boston Tea Party that happens in 1953. Some Washingtonians visit Capitol Hill and deliver individual tea bags to congressional offices. Attached, they added a note. Dear Congressman, have a cup of tea with our compliments and be respectfully reminded that 180 years ago, the citizens of Boston rebelled against taxation without representation. On March 15th, we, the voteless Americans of Washington, the capital of the world democracy, pay into the United States Treasury more federal income taxes than the people of each of 24 states. In addition, we will this year be taxed $120 million to pay 92% of the cost of running the capital city. We believe, like these early Americans of Boston, that taxation without representation is tyranny. One thing that the District of Columbia does get is the right to vote for electors for president. Though it, it takes the civil rights movement for this to happen. Kenneth Keating, a New York Republican senator, introduces an amendment for the purpose in 1959. It's supported by Eisenhower. 38 states ratify it by March 1961, including both of the new states, Alaska and Hawaii. Many others, Arkansas rejects it, and nine states, many in the South, do not vote on it at all. The 23rd Amendment gives District Columbia citizens the right to cast three electoral votes for president and vice president. But it's not the full rights of a state. There are two differences, some which maybe don't make much of a difference, but unlike any other state, D.C.'s electors are to be chosen in a manner determined by Congress. Fortunately, Congress decided early on to use the majority vote of the voters in the district as the determination for how those electors will be picked. And in 1964, D.C. gets to cast its first votes for president and selects Lyndon Johnson over Barry Goldwater in that election. 
There is something else. Um, the district is limited to three electoral votes, so it is not like a state in any way. Other states, Arizona, um, Montana's about to do this, have grown out of their small status and went beyond three votes. This isn't the case with D.C. It's limited to three votes. It's limited to having no more votes than the least populated state. Uh, it's a technical problem. Right now, the district's at 700,000. And as that, if, you know, that is more than Wyoming. It's not at 700,000. It's, um, it's probably got some ways to go before it could claim another electoral vote. But in any case, it can't get there no matter what. There's something else. The 23rd does not address congressional representation, which the district continues to have none. The district at a population of 700,000 is the average size of a congressional district at this point. There's a few that are larger. Uh, Montana has over a million, but that's changing in 2024. Since I started uh, doing the podcast and now something changed, the district obviously gained in population. It was pretty good growth, 100,000 in the last 10 years. Vermont slipped under D.C. So it's at the time I was first doing a podcast about D.C. representation, when I started the podcast, I was able to say the District of Columbia has more people living in it than the state of Wyoming, and now you can add the state of Vermont. And there's nothing against Vermont or Wyoming in particular. It's just this is simply a fact. Let's talk about the statehood debate. You've seen that come and and and. So the arguments for is you have this large group of people who are unrepresentative. You know, we're not pe- talking about people maybe living on a base temporarily or something like this. Is generations of people growing up. There is also a large percentage of African Americans, which you know leads to the question: Why are constitutional questions being raised here that might not in other cases because of who's living there? And the history is certainly there to determine that that's the case. You have quotes from congressmen, you know, going back to the 1870s about wanting to keep black citizens down. You have segregationists running the committees for D.C. and preventing home rule. Because there's two other states that have less population, you can't say that there are not enough people living there to become a state. Washington, D.C. is not a backwater. Washington, D.C. is a thriving city. It's shown nothing but growth in recent years. Citizens have no state government. That means they don't, they lose the, and this this is something that's never talked about much in this debate, and because it's funny, because it's kind of like a state's right argument, is that they lose this protection. So when you, things like the 10th Amendment, citizens of D.C. don't have those protections. The idea that state has certain sovereign rights and police powers, the federal government can't take, and the federal government can't take away in the 68 square miles of the District of Columbia, that's not the case. Congress retains a veto over any laws that the district passes. That is the only group on the mainland of the United States where that could possibly happen. The Congress cannot do that to Sacramento. It cannot do that to Jefferson City. It cannot do that to Augusta, Maine. That's a violation of the Tenth Amendment. It can do it any day of the week that it wants with the District of Columbia, and it has in the past. What's the other side? There is. There certainly is. Um, D.C. would become a unique state. It would be the smallest state. It would probably be the smallest state for some time. 
Now, Hawaii and Rhode Island are over 10,000 square miles. This is a 68-square-mile place. It lacks some of the characteristics of other states, which, for instance, have a mix of city and rural and have some feeling of both so that their senators that they send to the Senate represent different viewpoints. Because of the small size, there's a possibility that, okay, the population's been going up. What in the future? What if in the future it goes down? Where most states over time are always growing, what if it were to go down? It's one city. What if people suddenly find it not desirable to live there? Now you've got a kind of rotten borough system where a smaller population is locked into a state, two senators, a congressperson. I'm just giving you the arguments here. That's not the true argument, though. None of this. Um, two more kind of pretty easy to knock down arguments, but I'll make them. And then one that I think is the real cusp here. Here's the two. One is you could say it's duplicative because since you have a city and you'd be making a state out of it, you'd have duplicative governments where you don't have that in the case in any other state. Alexandria, Virginia, Arlington, Virginia, of state of Virginia. You know, here you would have DC, DC. All right. Maybe they'll get rid of the local government. I don't know. But you have the possibility for duplicative government. We like, you know, government, government's least is best kind of thing. It's, it's kind of the other one. And this has been used since the beginning, since the first Federalist argued with John Smiley in the debate over the Organic Act of 1801. And one of them says, you know, these people in this district are going to have so much influence because they're right there. And you've even seen that argument. There was a Republican congressman recently arguing that uh, because the any congressperson in D.C., it's in their backyard. They don't have to commute home. They don't have to go see constituents. They can spend extra time on the committees and become experts and embedded in this government. This argument that these D.C. citizens are so already influential in the government, they don't need two senators or a representative, you know, is made. I don't find it very convincing myself. Historically, we see in the example of Alexandria or Georgetown, which tried to get out of the district for this very reason. Because, yeah, we're right next to the congressman. Maybe we can grab them on their way to work or from the boarding houses they're living in or something like that. But we're not having influence on them because we don't vote for them. And that's the only thing in democracy is founded on that the only reason politicians do something for you is because you vote for them. But none of these are the real cusp of the debate, so we should just go right for it, and it's simply this. You want two senators because you want two senators. The Democratic Party's pushing this because it will add two Democratic senators. There is virtually no chance that there would be a Republican senator. With the long view of history, there certainly could be, but um, as parties change, as voter preferences change, but right now, yeah, you are talking about a partisan move to help one party. And that would be an argument against it. It's hard to argue that. I mean, there is no, it's also a bit of an unfair argument because if I make you the case that it's right to correct uh, an error in representation, even if there's a benefit for me, I'm still correcting an unfairness. There's 700,000 people with no senator. This is one way to do it. Yeah. Benefits me? Sure historically, to this argument, there have absolutely been states created for this same thing. 
Nevada, created a little bit early before it even had a lot of population to provide Lincoln with three more electoral votes for his reelection. Certainly, the states of Colorado, Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, all created during uh, Benjamin Harrison's administration to give Republicans extra senators as they were losing senators in the South to the Democratic Party after Reconstruction. And you can add Wyoming and you can add Utah as well, eventually, are just simply enhancing the Republican Party in Congress. There were territories before. It was also right to give those people representation. It was right to give the growing West representation, but it also had a political benefit. Statehood has always seemed to have a bit of a political benefit. I guess the other way I react to that um, very valid contention that you, you're pursuing statehood now to gain you know, two votes on your side is that uh, I pretty much would believe that if Democrats were successful in putting through D.C. statehood, Republicans will find a counter as soon as they have the presidency and the Congress. I think that's they're not going to uh, back down from a fight on something like that. So you're, I would I don't know exactly what form that takes, to be honest. Do you do Southern Idaho and Northern Idaho? You might get a risk in Southern Idaho getting a Democrat in there, but I assume they'd divide the state appropriately. Uh, they'd find something like that. There's no provision that uh, is in the Constitution to reverse statehood. You can only take away territory of a state with that state's consent. And that's seen as a vote of its legislature confirmed by the governor. That's happened with West Virginia. So they're not going to be able to reverse D.C. if D.C. was made a state, but you could find somewhere else and make it a state. So you have to have a willing state. That's why I, that's why I look at Idaho. Very willing legislature to do some some things, very connected to the National Republican Party, governor, check. It, and it has enough land that's occupied by Republican voters that it would be a safer place to do it than other places. I have no idea. Haven't heard any talk about it. Any move made just for the partisan benefit would probably be a two-year to four-year benefit alone. Um, the statehood is not the only cure for representation. You could also find other ways. An amendment to give a House member, just expand the 23rd to give a House member to D.C., at least help some. Uh, Mitt Romney's proposal, which is to include it in the representation scheme for Maryland and therefore, there would not be two new senators, but they would get a House member because they'd be increasing Maryland's population by 700,000. The D.C. makes a nice district within Maryland. Maryland is opposed to this, so that's going to be a little difficult. Could be an amendment to grant them two senators and a House member if there were the states to ratify it. Yeah, so it had to be pretty shocking. You're the Pennsylvania legislature, 1783, tail end of the Revolutionary War, just about wrapped up, and you're meeting, and all of a sudden, out the windows, you see bayonets. and marching soldiers, and then at the doors, there's sentries.
and just a few people at first, few soldiers, and then there are hundreds. little bit intimidating. And that's what John Dickinson and the members of the Pennsylvania legislature at the time went through. And it's related direct, um, and it's related to the debate about the federal city, where it's located, all of that. Because there's another point to discuss. And that is that Washington, D.C. has a unique quality that it is a national capital. And its very presence was controversial. Its very presence was decided as part of the decision to to even have a constitution and then the debate between the federal government and the state governments and their powers. A contributing factor to a separate capital for the United States is an event that took place in 1783. The British are still in New York. They haven't evacuated yet, but they're going too soon, and effectively the war is over. Washington's with his army in Newburgh, New York, holding the Hudson, keeping an eye on the British army, and he's just put down a potential rebellion there. Congress announces new tax plan, and they aren't taxing the states enough to the degree that the financier, the head of finance of the government at that time, Robert Morris, feels that they can pay their bondholders. Morris says, look, to the Congress, you can't go with this budget unless we're able to cut expenses. Only one big expense right now for this fledgling continental government, and that is the army. So they declare that there will be furloughs of the army as we're winding down the Revolutionary War. George Washington up in Newburgh is not pleased with this. He thinks it's ill-timed, badly handled. He's got a better control of the situation there. He works out a plan where furloughs can be kind of on a volunteer basis. There are some people who want to go home and want to be furloughed, and people can substitute others. There's no such flexibility brought to the Pennsylvania line. This is the Continental Army in Pennsylvania, thousands of men. It comes as a surprise to them. And they don't like the idea of this Congress, many rich men, determining what's going to happen and sending soldiers who have fought in a long revolutionary war home early. And so they meet. There's a couple meetings in a tavern, the Dr. Franklin Tavern in Philadelphia. Um, It's decided that troops from Lancaster and other parts of Pennsylvania will enter the Philadelphia barracks, and they do so as kind of an intimidation. There's a committee from Congress headed up by Governor Morris who comes over and sees the soldiers. It doesn't go well, this meeting. He, one of the many unfortunate comments he makes is that they, they offer to pay them a month's salary. And that's plenty of money when some of these people are hundreds of miles from home. So soldiers, about 400 of them, march on the Pennsylvania State House. This is at the time where Congress is meeting, but it's also where the Pennsylvania legislature is meeting. And it's a very important point to make. These potentially mutinous soldiers are marching on the seat of the Pennsylvania state government and start treating with that government, um, sending uh, a committee to deal with John Dickinson. So it's actually the same building where Congress is meeting as well. And John Dickinson keeps Congress informed. The president of the United States in Congress assembled at this time is Elias Boudinot from New Jersey, 
Uh, he holds that office for one year, and it's on his watch when all of these events occur. But it's an important point to make. The sergeants, the committee that's sent out from the from the um, grieving soldiers, are really dealing with the state of Pennsylvania. They know that's where the money is, not so much in Congress. In fact, Congress doesn't have a quorum at this time. Urged by Hamilton, more members of Congress come. They don't. They still don't have enough for a quorum. Many in Philadelphia ask Dickinson to call out the militia. He's reluctant to do so. First of all, he doesn't believe they may not come out to face their own fellow soldiers. And also, he doesn't want to create a problem where there may not be. The city of Philadelphia, who are sympathetic to the soldiers' cause, have another defense mechanism. They open up the taverns and supply free liquor. This worries many of the Congress members, including James Madison, who's worried about perhaps not a real revolution of soldiers, but some kind of ad hoc one. Negotiations ensue, usually between the Sergeant's Committee and the Pennsylvania state government headed up by Dickinson. Boudinot writes a letter to Washington up in his camps, asked for him to send troops down. He actually asked for Washington to come down with some of his best men Washington writes back that he'll send a force down and all of his men are his best men. It's interesting. And they do um, arrive. He actually tells Boudinot, like, the route by which the troops are going to take because if you have to call this off, he doesn't want to spare men from where they are in Newburgh. Perhaps as a reluctant for this whole exercise. Later, he's going to say that the civil authorities just handled this whole thing badly. Suffice it to say... While there is a assemblage of 400 men in uniform mustering around the state house, they do sort of harass some of the legislators and even President Boudinot at one point. But nobody's arrested, nobody's captured, nobody's harmed. Negotiations ensue. Eventually, they work out a settlement. Congress decides to flee to Princeton because of these events. Hamilton makes a very big deal about it that the nation needs a secure national capital. And the events of this 1783, there is debate whether it's exaggerated or not. The events, the events of the 1783 mutiny are, you know, a cause for the selection of a separate federal city. There are members who want Congress to meet in a place that is not under the control of the federal, of a state government. But we should remember that This is 1783. It's four years later that in the same city, in the same building, Constitutional Convention members meet and discuss things. And it's pretty late in that convention, which starts in May of 1787. You get to July 26, and it's the first mention of what we're going to do about a capital. George Mason from Virginia suggests that there should not be a provincial tincture to national debates. And he wants to have a resolution that would ban any state capital from being used as a national one. So even early on, Mason's not yet saying federal city. He's saying, let's just make sure we don't use a state capital. Now, that's going to be controversial because that means Philadelphia, which is currently the state capital. They're not in Harrisburg yet. It also means New York City. Governor Morris, who's also at this convention, is going to bring up the fact that if you do this, Mason, you're going to lose some support in Pennsylvania and New York, which are going to be needed to ratify this constitution, because both those states have an interest in possibly hosting the capital of the United States. Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts wanted to move the capital away from any big city. 
And the debate continues along that line. There are people that support not using any state capitals. Some say no to cities. Some say don't determine this at all at the convention. Mason thought about what Governor Morris had said and worries about those politics and says he does not want to excite passions against the system and withdraws his request to ban the use of state capitals for the national capital. And the convention goes a long time deciding other matters like how we're going to elect Congress and how we're going to starting to talk about how we're going to elect a president, what the president's going to do without determining this matter again. So it's August 11th. It comes up again. Rufus King of New York decides that the national capital was too ambulatory during the revolution. It moved several times in the Confederation period between the revolution and a constitution. It moved several times. You had it in Annapolis. You've had the capital of the United States has been Annapolis. It's been Trenton. It's been York, Pennsylvania. It's been Baltimore. It's been Philadelphia. It's been New York City. It's dishonored the federal government to move it so much, and that requires a strong cure. Okay, but Rufus King is there at the convention representing New York, and Richard Spate, a delegate from North Carolina, confronts him on this. This means we would keep the Capitol in New York if we're not going to move it so much. So the convention decides, and I think this is important to understanding Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, that they, the convention, will not pick a capital. They will let Congress do that. And the language that Congress is given, it's given as an enumerated power. One of the things that it can do. Does not say must do, can do. To exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10 miles square, as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of the government of the United States. Another clause adds that Congress also gets authority other over places purchased for the erection of buildings, docks, armories, and forts. Let's focus for a moment on 10 miles square, which means 100 square miles. There is something to say about that. It's big. It also means if you're talking about something that that is that large. It cannot be Philadelphia. It cannot be New York. If Congress decides on a federal city after this convention, it isn't going to be in a state capital because they can't afford to cede that many square miles of territory. It's probably going to be in a new area if it's even built. So what you really have is an option given to Congress and kicking to Congress all of the decisions about the Capitol, what it's going to look like. Um, I'm with John Vile, the author of the Encyclopedia of the Constitutional Convention and a constitutional scholar that's saying, convention debates hint at concerns that national business might be unduly influenced by state business. The fact that delegates in the Constitutional Convention did not discuss issues of voting and representation for the district suggest these effects may have been unintentional. I'm with Vile. Ceded power to Congress to work things out. I'm not sure that that includes whether people can vote or not in a given place, whether they can have rights of the, as Americans in a given place. Now, that might put me at odds even with some Supreme Court decisions that have been made over the years, but it seems to make a lot of sense. The reasons for giving Congress control over that capital was, first of all, 
to take that decision away from the convention because they're going to have to go out and put this to the states to ratify it. And you've got at least four states, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania that want the capital to be in their cities. And you don't want to lose those states in the ratification process. So that's one of the reasons they're kicking control to Congress. There's obviously nothing in the constitutional language that says the residents of this federal city cannot vote. Nothing disenfranchising them. There certainly were some concerns about a state having one state having more influence on the process. You see comments from early congressmen in Philadelphia that the city still feels like a loyalist city. There's comments about Quaker and influence that the culture of Philadelphia had too much influence on the city. Same comments that you hear about Washington, D.C. today in some cases. I want to thank you for listening. You know, sure, some part of this debate is partisan, but it needn't be. You know, and I welcome your opinion. What is clear is that this situation, which is a historic situation that historic presidents have identified, shouldn't continue. And that, I think, is the 700,000 is a lot of people. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We are part of Airwave Media Network. Don't forget BetterHelp. BetterHelp.com slash BeatUp is our sponsor. And if you like the program, please tell someone else about it. So many podcasts out there, and if you know someone that's into history and politics, just you know, let them know about this program. Thanks for listening.